Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with performance and how to improve the human experience. Twice a week, I explore the latest science, technology, and tactics with experts in various fields of human optimization. I'm your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Superhumans! Conversations with smart people about smart topics. That's the reason why I do this podcast. After all, I'm looking to have the best experience as a human possible. And the conversation that we're about ready to go into actually started in Munich, Germany at Flowfest. So thank you, Max Gosler, for the introduction. My guest today is Dr. Jim Hart, and he is the founder of the BioCybernaut Institute. If you go and work with the BioCybernaut Institute, over the course of seven days, you can instill 21 to 40 years of meditation training in your brain. The effects of that we get into today in this episode, and I must say, everything about this episode was absolutely mind-blowing. If you want to check out the BioCybernaut Institute, get in touch with us or go over to BioCybernaut Institute's website, which we'll link to in the show notes, of course, and mention that you heard about it from Decoding Superhuman. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash biocybernaut. Enjoy my episode with Dr. James Hart. Dr. Hart, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be with you, Boomer. So you and I met a couple of weeks back at uh, Flowfest in Munich, and I recall having this amazing dinner sitting next to you, and I was talking to you about things that many people aren't familiar with, and we're going to expose a lot of stuff on this show, talking about just how to enhance cognition, which is one of my favorite topics, but also looking at things like C60 oil, which is something we may not mm-hmm. cover today, but I have to say you've, you've sparked my interest. So yeah. I'll record the intro or the intro will be recorded separately, but what we're going to do or what I want to dive a little bit into, if you don't mind, is in our conversation that night, and you have this on your website as well, you mentioned the ability to really obtain 21 to 40 years of Zen in seven days. Mm -hmm. Why would anybody be interested in something like this? I mean, I certainly am, but why do you think the average person should be interested in this? Well, it's interesting cultural phenomenon that um, the Zen uh, sort of philosophy has swept America uh, with uh, greater uh, reach and depth than, for example, yoga. And one of the differences is in Zen and yoga philosophy. The superconscious state in Zen is called Satori, and the superconscious state in yoga is called Samadhi. They are both characterized by very high alpha all over the head. But there are significant differences because a yogi absorbed in Samadhi is basically disconnected from what we would call phenomenal reality. You can bang symbols in their ears. You can touch them with a red-hot branding iron. They're unperturbed. Their alpha waves are not blocked. And in yoga, the philosophy is that everything that we consider real is an illusion. 
It's called Maya. It's devalued. The only reality that matters is the reality within. Now, in Zen, it's a very different philosophy. Yes, the superconscious state of Satori has very high alpha, just like Samadhi in yoga, but there's a big difference because even if you ring a little tinko bell by the ear of a monk who is in Satori, the alpha will block, unlike the yogi where it doesn't block. And so if the, the five or six times with an ordinary person ringing the bell and the brain goes, oh, it's that bell again. It's not dangerous. It's not interesting. And so the alpha stops blocking. It's called habituation. But with a Zen monk in Satori, the thousandth time you ring the bell, the alpha will block. It's like the English poet William Blake, who said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. So you have in Zen the ability to experience in the inner world, but you also have the opportunity to achieve mastery in the outer world. So the bullet trains in Japan run on time. There's extraordinary cleanliness, the big uh, silicon fab companies where they grow these big silicon chips, immaculate, not one particle of contamination. So they have perfection of the inner world and perfection of the outer world. And I think that's why, to Westerners, Zen has become more popular than yoga. It's certainly the Zen ideal is peace, tranquility, as well as enhanced awareness. This is brilliant. And so... There's a lot of stuff that you touched on there uh, about alpha, about uh, about Zen, about yoga that we want to get into a little bit deeper. But first, before we get into that, do you mind just talking a little bit about your background story? Because I'm curious, what made you pursue this real path of enhancing cognition? A profound altered state of consciousness that happened in Joe Camille's lab. Briefly. Okay, you're, you're going to have to you're, you're going to have to go deeper on that. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was a senior in physics at Carnegie Institute of Technology fall semester. I came out of the student union after lunch to find a big hand painted sign with every letter a slightly different color, and it said, "Dr. Joe Camilla will talk on brainwaves and consciousness." And it gave a time that was just ten minutes away. The building was right over here, and I didn't have a class, so I went. And it was fascinating. I had been, through some friends, exposed to some philosophy like uh, Father Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the phenomenon of man. And all of this was cool and groovy, but what was to be measured? It was all just, uh, you know, mental masturbation uh, to my physics major mind. And so suddenly, here was a technology that could measure electrical activity in the brain, and it seemed to be connected with useful, important, and fascinating topics in consciousness. So I dedicated every spare minute of my senior year to going to the library and reading everything I could about the long history of brainwaves, which went back to the first report was made in uh, 1918 by Herr Dr. Dr. Hans Berger, an Austrian psychiatrist. And there's a really interesting story related to that, which we'll tell another time. So uh, it's now the spring. I graduate. I get on my Triumph motorcycle and I ride up into Canada, across North America and down the West Coast to San Francisco, where Joe Camilla had his lab. And I volunteer as a research subject. Pretty primitive conditions. One electrode in the middle of the back of the head, 
um, one three-digit score and a torn speaker sitting on an orange crate in the corner of a closet, which was the feedback chamber. They did have a huge <laughs> PDP-15 mini computer, a couple hundred thousand dollar digital equipment core mini computer that ran everything. But the actual hardware for the interface was pretty primitive. And so I had three sessions, about an hour each, and it was the most fascinating thing I had ever had in my life. For example, the alpha would surge and my rational mind, which was, you know, I just got a, a bachelor's in physics. My rational mind would jump on and go, what was that? How did I do that? How can I keep it going? And the alpha would retreat like, you know, scared child. Mm-hmm. And so then I, I'd relax and there'd be another alpha surge and my mind would jump on it. What was that? How can I do that? How can I keep it going? And it would retreat. So what I learned to do was to put a collar and a leash on my cognitive mind, my rational mind. So when the tone would occur, I could like hold it back a second or so before it destroyed everything by jumping in to analyze it. And so over time, I was able to learn how to restrain this compulsive cognition for half a second, a second, two seconds. And when I got up to about five seconds, I started to float up out of the chair. It was really groovy. Um, I was a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, and I'd never even been drunk, so I didn't know anything about altered state. <laughs> so I want more. I go back on the fourth day wanting more, and um, they aren't doing any studies, and I'm all disappointed. But Joe Camilla's girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked in the lab. She and I had become friends, and I went to her office, and I said very sweetly, Joanne, would you hook me up with a few electrodes, turn this equipment on so I could play? And she goes, sure. Takes me downstairs puts the electrodes on, puts it in the chamber, starts the, uh, the feedback equipment. She doesn't run the polygraph. It's just, you know, not going to waste paper and ink on somebody playing. Mm-hmm. And then she leaves. She goes upstairs, gets involved in her work. Later, lunch comes. She goes to lunch with nine other members of the lab. And in course 11 of a 12-course Chinese lunch, she goes, oh, oh, my God. And she remembered that there was somebody in the chamber. And so all 10 of them pile into this VW camper van, go hurtling back across town, rush up to the building, run in, rip open the door, and interrupt the later stages of a most incredible adventure. Uh, I was out of body. I was flying around the universe. I was meeting just corporate entities. I was having ego disintegration. And I was so high that for the next three days when I walked, it was like my feet were, you know, two and a half feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figured, well, this is pretty cool. And I, all I want to do is like make this available to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, well, if I get back on my motorcycle, summer's over, ride back across the country, go back to now Carnegie Mellon. I have friends there. And I registered for a PhD in psychology and got like a full scholarship and, you know, a stipend and stuff. And I wanted to get my rational mind certified with a PhD in psychology because I figured I'd be working with some weird stuff. And I wanted people to, you know, take me seriously. Mm-hmm. So then I start, I start doing trainings for other people. And I very quickly discovered that most people can't have the far out experiences that I have because of emotional traumas. And a lot of these are in the unconscious. So I did like a, a several decade detour in my career to develop methods, computerized mood scales and so on that we take when people are actually in the chamber and their brainwaves are being measured Mm-hmm. So that we can detect unconscious emotions, negative unconscious ones sap your strength and energy and block your success. And the positive unconscious emotions are a source of joy and energy that you're just not able to tap into. And so 
the training, although it uses neurofeedback, it's become really a depth exploration process. Wow. Uh, so first off, can we go back to that moment in the lab where you were left alone during lunch break? How long were you in the machine for or on the machine maybe for? Four, maybe four hours uninterrupted. And before that, how long had you been on the machine for? Oh, the sessions, the first three sessions were maybe uh, 50 minutes each. 50 <laughs> minutes wow. This is uh, this yeah. is excellent. So there's a few terms that I just want to define for people who may be encountering this for the first time. You've mentioned so far alpha waves. Do you mind just doing mm-hmm. like a brief overview of, of well, brain waves? Uh, the, uh, you know, sure. what are the benefits of really a sustained alpha state? Well, the, the first uh, more general question, if you take a triangular prism and you pass a shaft of sunlight through it, it breaks it down into a spectrum from red, orange, yellow, green, you know, teal, blue, indigo, violet. Mm-hmm. Similarly, what we do is we take channels of brainwaves and pass them through the electronic equivalent of a prism. And we break the EEG down. The EEG stands for electroencephalogram, the electrical waves from the brain. And the spectrum goes like delta waves, which are the slowest. It's like red and then a little faster is theta, then you have Schumann, then you have alpha, then you have beta, and the fastest brain waves are gamma. And so alpha waves uh, are 8 to 13 cycles per second in Mm -hmm. adults, and they are associated with many, many useful uh, and enjoyable states. Uh, For example, uh, closing your eyes will raise your alpha, relaxing will raise it more, if you have uh, positive thoughts and feelings, the alpha goes up more. If you open your heart to love and authenticity, the alpha goes up more. Orgasm profoundly increases alpha. You and go. you can't, yeah, absolutely. And I've actually had people sitting perfectly motionless in a quiet, dark room going into such brainwave bliss states that their body went into orgasm. Wow. And so remember, brainwaves rule. Mm hmm. Brainwaves rule. And so uh, any experience that you have as a living human being, you can have that only when you have the appropriate pattern of brainwaves. Okay. And so uh, it's been known since, you know, late 1800s that anxiety was a significant impediment to any kind of performance, learning or athletic performance. Uh, In fact, we have a, a, a young skier. Uh, uh, who 20 years old and he and his coach are starting the alpha training at my Victoria, British Columbia training center tomorrow. This lad has amazing times in practice, Olympic quality, but he's such anxiety, performance anxiety that when he's in competition, he doesn't do well. And so his coach, his mother and his coach found by a cybernaut and his coach and the skier are going to be starting their alpha training in Victoria uh, tomorrow. And so we know that if you reduce anxiety, performance increases across a wide spectrum, cognitive performance, agility and skill performance, uh, logical and deductive uh, performance, uh, even relationship performance goes up when there's more alpha because you're more empathic, you're more in tune with other people. In fact, one of the results of the alpha training as we do it now is an increase in emotional intelligence of 15.8 points 
which translates into, uh, since every one-point increase in EQ nets a person $1,300 more income per year. That's a global average. So, you know, in America, it would be, in, in Europe, it would be more. And so the expected annual uh, income boost from the Alpha One training is well over $20,000 just from the IQ, just from the boost in emotional intelligence. But it also impacts, you know, many people say that IQ only accounts for 10, maybe 20% of your success in life. You can be, you can be real smart, but if you can't get along with people, you're not going to, you know, get funding. You're not going to have collaborators. You're not going to have people wanting to work for you. Whereas EQ accounts for almost 60% of your success in life. And all of these, we have IQ go up with the Alpha One training, 11.7 points. EQ goes up 15.8 points. And when we tested a group of Stanford Research Institute scientists, their creativity went up 50% on average with just the first week of Alpha training. Wow. Wow. Some of them solved problems. Some of the Stanford SRI scientists solved problems in the chamber that had stumped them for over two years. They go into a high alpha state, and there's the answer. Mm -hmm. So the traditional person who's experiencing a lot of anxiety or just, let's say, has a lot of fear around public speaking, whatever that may be, when they're, what brainwave state are they in in that moment? Or does it depend on the person? So they're in beta in general? Yeah. And then so Which is anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. And then when we drop them into alpha, they unlock these states of call it creativity, just heightened awareness, empathy, etc. Flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the, the great one word that you and I both know <laughs> to synonymize it. Okay. Excellent. So biocybernaut, you take these people through a seven-day experience, as I understand it. And you've had yeah. the likes of Tony Robbins, at least uh, Tony Robbins is on the website. You've had other people, uh, you mentioned a pretty famous skier before, go through the experience. Do you mind just taking us through sort of what the seven days looks like and how you're able to institute this 21 to 40 years of Zen within seven days? Because for a lot of people listening, they may be a little bit skeptical. Okay, well, let's, let's go directly to the science. First of all, I love skeptics because they're paying attention to the data. We have <laughs> all the data. So there were two famous Japanese scientists, Dr. Kasumatsu and Dr. Hirai, who wanted to study the brainwaves of Zen meditation in Japan. So they went to Zen masters in, uh, who had uh, temples uh, in both of the two main Zen traditions, Soto and Rinzai. Like Christianity has Protestants and Catholic. In Zen, they have Soto and Rinzai. And so they asked permission to measure the brainwaves of the monk during sitting Zafen. Permission granted. Further, they asked the Zen masters to rate their students for level of spiritual development. And they did. Beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Now, what was interesting was nobody was rated advanced who had less than 21 years of practice daily practice, very strict practice of Zazen, and some had 40 years of practice. So we know advanced Zen, the brainwaves of advanced Zen, we know what they are. They're uh, not, they don't show up until at least 21 years of Zen practice. Okay, so now what we do is we look at the results of people doing the Alpha One brainwave training. And they go through the stages of 
beginning Zen where alpha increases at the back of the head, intermediate Zen where the alpha spreads forward on the head, and advanced Zen where it does those two things plus the frequency of the alpha slows a little and you get beta waves emerging at the frontal locations of the brain. This was seen only in 21 to 40 year veterans of Zen, this slowing of the frequency and the increase of uh, uh, theta waves at the frontal locations. And so the alpha training, when I analyzed the results, and this was a paper actually published in 1993, the brainwave changes include, they start out, alpha increases the back of the head, they spread forward in the head, they slow in frequency, and theta waves emerge from the two frontal sites. And so this is exact, not an analog, not close. This is exactly the brainwave pattern that's produced in advanced end, 21 to 40 years. But we can do that in a week. Technology speeds things up. Okay, can we go a little bit into some of that technology? Because you know, I, I'm familiar a little bit with neurofeedback training, but I'm imagining mm-hmm. what you've created here is is much more advanced than sort of a standard neurofeedback training. Well, yeah, and everything has been optimized based on brain science. Mm-hmm. Uh, the length of the epics uh, during which people are listening to the audio feedback, uh, the length of the displays where the audio shuts off for eight seconds, scores, dimly illuminated scores light up to quantify the energy they put out at different regions of the brain, as well as how well the left and the right brain are working together. And um, the pitch of the tones is scientifically chosen based on research that shows that certain pitches are least disruptive of alpha. So everything's been optimized. A lot of it's not obvious to people, but everything's been optimized, including the time course of the delivery of the training. Now, Mm -hmm. embedded, it's not just neurofeedback. It's a biocybernaut training program. It uses neurofeedback, but a big part of it is these computerized mood scales. At the beginning, at the end, and sometimes in some of the trainings in the middle of the day, people interact with the mood scale program. And it flashes on the screen emotional words, friendly, clear thinking, sleepy, unhappy, dizzy, one at a time. And the person pushes a button to indicate how much they're feeling that. Mm -hmm. The one in the morning is how much are you feeling this right now? Then the one that's done after the uh, alpha enhancement session is how did you feel in your moments of highest alpha when the tones were the loudest and you were getting the highest scores? And so in addition to scoring the people based on their responses on 21 different moods, the computer also performs very subtle analysis that allows us to know what the unconscious emotions are. Let's say the word was angry and the person pushes zero. And so in terms of the anger score, it would score low because there are other words like irritated, upset, uh, you know, cross, peeved, annoyed. You know, so there are a whole bunch of words that relate to anger. And if the person denies those, they would get a low anger score. But on each one of the words, the computer makes a determination of the accuracy of that answer. So let's say they said zero to anger, but the computer pops up five sigmas. Well, a one sigma is a 68% chance their answer is wrong. Two sigmas is a 95% chance. Three sigmas is a 99.7% chance. So if they get a five sigma on anger, well, guess what? This is an angry person, and they're blocking it or they're in denial about it. 
And so when it comes time to process, interview the people based on their mood scale, the trainer will say, okay, you got five sigmas on angry. What are you angry about? Well, I'm not angry. Well, yeah, that's what you said. But really, what are you angry about? And then maybe a tear comes out of one eye or lip trembles a little. And then they tell this story where they were, you know, abused or put upon or robbed or cheated or steal, stolen from and uh, lied to. And uh, then there turn out in that story, there are some perpetrators. And so then these perpetrators go on the forgiveness list. So later uh, in the day when they're in the chamber, it, we have a 14-step forgiveness method. It turns out forgiveness is only effective un when it's done under conditions of rising alpha. So we set up the protocol in such a way that you don't start until you connect to the pain, your alpha drops, your scores go white. Then when you start forgiving, if it's working, your alpha is going to be rising and the scores will show up in colors. Blue if you went higher, green if you set a new high for the day. And as long as you're getting colors in the scores every two minutes, you keep forgiving. If the drop and the scores turn white, then you go to your judges, three you know flawless beings that you bring in for the purpose, and you say, have I done all the forgiveness I can do for now? And if the judges say no, then you go back, feel the pain again, and start through doing more forgiveness. Judges say yes, and you celebrate. You integrate. Uh, you maybe do some inner child work, or you say, you know, I love you, Boomer. I love you, Boomer. I mean, we, we call it the love algorithm. Express mm -hmm. appreciation for yourself. And so uh, it, there's, a, there's many things that happen. When people come out of the chamber at the end of the day, they go to a room where we have canopied beds where they sit or lie while uh, one at a time they're interviewed. They, there's a depth interview uh, conducted by the trainer. And so people get to report on what happened to them and the trainer will ask them questions, which will further deepen their recall and transfer these amazing experiences from short-term memory to long-term memory because they're asked about and talk about it. Plus the other people in the training, and we can have up to five in the classic training, up to three in the premium double. And uh, they get to hear what the other people are working on. And maybe you have somebody who had been abused as a child and they you know, are unwilling to forgive the abuser. Whereas the person next to them had far worse things happen and they're forgiving and forgiving and obviously becoming lighter and more joyful and they're becoming radiant. And the person who's holding on to the grudge and the grievance saying, I don't want to forgive, looks over and sees this other person blossoming and say, well, I want some of that. Mm -hmm. And then the trainer will say, well, then you need to start forgiving also. Okay. So there's this kind of group contagion effect, if you will. Um, but also yeah. I now see how, how this works. How long are these days? Because if you're talking about implementing brainwaves over the course of seven days, I imagine, are they pretty lengthy? Um, we, we don't talk about time very much, but mm -hmm. we do tell people you'll probably be at the training center 12 to 14 hours a day. Okay. Okay. So. And that includes having dinner and, you know, bathroom breaks and, uh, you know, discussions of various kinds, chamber time, um, interview time, going over the mood scale of time. So, yeah, the days are full. If you're going to make 21 to 40 years of progress in a week, there's no time to, shall we say, idle at the side of the road. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you mentioned, and I was kind of shocked by when we were having dinner together in Munich, the effect of this, how long does it last afterwards? Uh, it's, well, that's it's, a totally cool question. Yeah. Uh, 
But in, when, when I first started doing the work, I was using the what's called the extreme groups design. I would select people who were the most psychologically disturbed, and the other half would be the least psychologically disturbed. And uh, with the and I was using first factor of the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is a generalized anxiety scale. But the MMPI also measures paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, uh, mania, depression, uh, hypochondriasis, a, a bunch of psychopathologies. And basically, I was finding after seven days that these psychopathologies had basically gone away. They were in the middle of the normal zone. I'd take people with the 98th and 99th percentile of paranoia or schizophrenia or anxiety, and a week later, they'd be around 50%, the 50th percentile. And so this was fascinating, uh, but I didn't know how long it lasted. So I wrote and won a large federal grant entitled Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. And what we did was I, I wrote in not only the pre-testing and the post-testing and all the training, but I wrote in a six-month follow-up and a 12-month follow-up because I wanted to know how long it lasted. Mm-hmm. Well, the, and, and the uh, target population was women from 60 up into their 80s. The reason being... Anxiety in women is higher than in men at every age. Anxiety goes up with age in men and women, and in women it goes up faster. So using older women as the research subjects would be a way to uh, see if this worked with the most at-risk group. Mm-hmm. And to my delight, uh, the elderly women had exactly the same types and ranges of benefits and improvements as the college-age males who had been the uh, pilot subjects. Wow. So then... We send them away, and we bring them back uh, six months later and retest them. And to our astonishment, we find that the personality profiles are better six months later than they were in the day or two just after the training. You're scratching my head now. How can this be? We send them away. We bring them back at 12 months. There are further improvements in their personality profile. So the question, how long does it last, isn't even the right question. A more accurate question, more useful question would be, how long after the training is it before new benefits stop showing up? Do you, do you, is there an answer to that question or is it just well, it continuous? I, I haven't done, haven't done the research. You know, <laughs> that was a that was a, a quarter million dollar research grant. So, mm-hmm. so but if the, somebody wants to provide the grant, I'd be happy to research longer term benefits. I think Tony Robbins may have to uh, take you up on that one. He's got, he's got the, uh, <laughs> he's got the money to do it, but Someday, someday, uh, Dr. Hart. But one of the things you mentioned about the brain, and I, I believe in sort of the frontal section of the brain, you mentioned theta waves. Mm-hmm. Can we talk yeah. about the significance of theta waves here for just a second? Absolutely. Uh, it turns out that theta waves, and there's two basically different types. Um, there's drowsy theta, and then there's mystical theta. Now, alpha has just one generator in the brain. It's a pacemaker cell located deep in the brain in the thalamus. And these alpha pacemaker cells run 24-7. You're awake, you're asleep, they're running. And they're always urging the cortex to be in alpha. Of course, if you're sleeping, it doesn't respond. Or if you're anxious or worrying or stressing out, then it doesn't respond to this subtle voice from within. And so theta, however, can be generated from a multiple sources. A growing brain tumor will produce theta. If you had a head injury, the scar tissue will generate theta waves. 
theta is seen in the aura that precedes an epileptic seizure. Uh, theta is uh, seen in stage one and stage two of sleep. Um, and so there are many, many things that will produce theta, but mystical theta, which looks, which is sinusoidal and looks like slowed down alpha, is associated with mystical perceptions. In fact, in theta, you can access the Akashic records, an energetic database of all knowledge that was and uh, will be. So, and can, so can we talk just a second on the Akashic records? Because I know sure. this was the, when I was speaking to you over dinner, that was almost the first time I've ever seen, heard that term. All right, let's take a moment and pause to talk about the BioCybernaut Institute. If you're like me and listening to Dr. Hart, the first question on your mind is, how do I do this? And so I want to give a little bit of pointers and people that you can reach out to for this. First off, in the show notes at decodingsuperhuman.com slash biocybernaut, we will have all of this information. But the person to reach out to in Dr. Hart's team is Kate O'Connor. And I'll link to all of her contact details. But because the BioCybernaut Institute works with people like Tony Robbins and others of that stratosphere, so to speak, it is an incredibly uh, in-demand program. And so you're going to need to contact Kate directly in order to get yourself scheduled. And hell, I may even join you. But check out all the show notes for this one, decodingsuperhuman.com slash biocybernaut. You can also go to Biocybernaut's website, which is biocybernaut.com. Fill out the contact form and just tell them that Boomer sent you because they may hook you up with something. Enjoy the rest of the episode with Dr. Hart. The energetic database of what is and what should ever be. Can we talk a little bit about what that experience would be like? Sure. Um, Akasha is a Sanskrit word, which means primordial substance. Mm -hmm. And the Akashic records are like an energetic library that you can tap into when you are in Theta. There are people uh, who have, as their profession, accessing the Akashic records and doing readings for people. And so uh, I've actually trained one of those uh, people uh, in in, in Alpha 1 and Alpha 2 and then Theta. And uh, in her tradition, there was a secret prayer that they would use to access the Akashic records. But after she learned to do Theta in her biocybernaut Theta training, she could simply turn on Theta and she could be in the record. She didn't have to go through any rituals or protocols. Brainwaves rule. Wow. And so in, in this, well, and some people, you know, like you said, it was a, a fairly new uh, term for you. Uh, it's important to understand that this is not just New Age mumbo-jumbo. And there are examples that almost everybody will know of famous people who, in a pre-technological way, developed a method of accessing Theta to do their inventions. Probably the most well-known of these is Thomas Alva Edison, who, among other things, invented the electric light bulb. And he, he, long before there was, you know, brainwave recordings and feedback, uh, he developed a technique to access the Akashic records. He would sleep deprive himself. He would sleep only four hours a night and usually in two shifts. So during the day, he'd be drowsy. And so he would lie in a recliner chair with a notepad on his chest with a pencil and then holding two large steel ball bearings, one in each hand, draping them over the edge of the chair with a metal pie pan under each hand. Then while thinking of something he wanted to invent, he would try to fall asleep. 
Well, you know, as soon as he hits sleep, as soon as he hits theta, he's going to lose postural tonus. He's going to lose his grip. The ball bearings will fall with a clattering din into the pipe hands, waking him up. And he grabs his pencil and he writes down whatever little piece of the invention he managed to pull out of the Akashic Records. Then he would grab the steel ball bearings, lie back in the chair, and go for the next round, trying to fall asleep while thinking of the solution. Now, he didn't know about theta waves. He had just come upon this empirically. Well, we now know the brain science behind this. And so it's possible to train people to do this, to solve problems for which they need information that is not known to them and maybe not known to any human in their time. I could tell you a story about Kekulé and the discovery of the benzene ring, if that would be of interest. Please do. I love this. Okay. Kekulé was, I believe, a Flemish organic chemist at the dawn of the uh, chemistry, organic chemistry field. And uh, the, uh, the solvent, benzene, had become very important and in high demand uh, for, as an industrial solvent but it was in limited natural supply. So the new science of organic chemistry took on like the moon quest of trying to synthesize benzene. And Kekulé became obsessed with this problem. He would work late at the lab every night and take the last trolley home, have a big dinner, and then drowse in front of the fireplace while you know, dreaming of uh, you know, how to solve this problem. Well, he began to see, and it delighted and startled him, he began to see furry balls moving around in the fireplace. Now, a tennis ball is a furry ball, but every piece of fur is exactly the same length. Kekulé called these furry balls, but they had sort of fuzzy, indistinct edges. You couldn't, you, they were clearly spherical, but you couldn't see exactly where it, the edge was. It was like indistinct. And over time, you know, he's fascinated by this. He began to look forward to it at the end of the day. And the balls would move around. Sometimes they would bump into each other. And sometimes when they would bump, they would stick. So over time, they developed chains. And one night, he's lying there in his theta stupor, uh, tired, you know, full belly, and, uh, you know, obsessed with this problem. And the chains of furry balls began to crack the whip. And one chain cracked the whip so hard that the end spun around and stuck and formed a ring. And he immediately knew that was a structure of benzene. He counted the furry balls, one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, the chemical formula for benzene is C6H12. So it's a ring structure of six carbon atoms, and now of each one, there's two hydrogens. And so by knowing that it was a ring structure, he rushed back to the lab the next day, and he did the test, confirmed it, and he was able to synthesize benzene. Now, what he was seeing, I would submit, I would submit that he was seeing the same thing that modern scientists would see using an electron microscope to look at atoms, mm-hmm. fuzzy, circular, spherical, with indistinct edges. You know, the, the cloud of electrons around a, a nucleus doesn't have a, I mean, you might find one five feet away, an electron, on its way back or whatever. And so it's a cloud of electrons around uh, the atoms. And so it's a clear example, it's famous in the Annals of Creativity, how Kekulé literally uh, dreamed up the atomic microscope version of atoms before that technology had been invented to solve his problem of the synthesis of benzene. Wow. If you Very don't, cool. Yeah, it's extremely cool. And I'm almost at a loss for words here, but one of the things that comes to mind is the awakening of the Kundalini. And forgive if, if I'm going down a wormhole that I don't need to go down, 
uh, let me know. Yeah, it's fun. Let's but go. Let's go. L- let's go. Let's go to the awakening of the Kundalini because uh, there are, if you spend enough time in Dr. Google, uh, there are people that have done this very poorly and have had some pretty bad results. Do you mind talking yep. us through just sort of how does this process occur with the seven days of training and what exactly is it and why, why does it, why can you control it through this process? Okay. Well, remember that um, the first axiom of biofeedback, which I formulated in 1970 was any process in your mind, brain, or your body about which you can be given accurate and immediate information you can learn to control. Mm-hmm. And that includes the that includes the pH or the acidity of your stomach, the galvanic uh, skin conductance, uh, your brain waves. It's all available for some degree of voluntary control if you have appropriate feedback. So turns out that I made the first recording and the first publication, uh, first scientific publication of the brain waves of Kundalini. And so uh, this happened uh, with a trainee in 1988. And, uh, you know, rather than going into the details of the story, how that came up, which, you know, we could do if you want, but we can talk about the brain waves, which are delta waves. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do offer, uh, okay, so it's a very powerful evolutionary energy. Uh, the way Ramdas describes it, and he's probably the best at translating the details of Indian psychology and spirituality into Western scientific and psychological language, he said, you imagine there's a lingam, which is a phallus-like uh, object at the base of the spine between the genitals and the anus, and wrapped three and a half times around it is a snake, the kundalini energy. And when the kundalini rises, the snake lifts its head and begins ascending up the ida and the pingala, the subtle nerve uh, channels uh, in the spine. When it passes each one of the chakras, they burst into superconscious awareness. And so when it reaches the crown chakra, it, it creates uh, the superconscious state, uh, which they call in yoga, the thousand petaled lotus. Mm-hmm. And typically, if you see a Buddha, you'll see he's wearing like a crown of flower petals. That's to symbolize that he is in a kundalini awakening, a superconscious state. Now, it's extremely powerful. Uh, my first kundalini experience happened about 1989. I was... Uh, I was leading a theta training with three people. There was a spare chamber, and so I would get electrodes on, and while they were doing their enhancement, I would do theta training. And I had this Kundalini awakening. It was this massive, like a freight train of energy rushing up my spine, and everything that was me, my identity, my goals, my thoughts, my, it was all pushed to like the very, very far outer edge, like a fire hose with this immense current of energy rushing up through. And so I was forever altered by that in, in ways that we could talk about. Now, mm-hmm. I have met over 150 Kundalini yoga teachers, and not one of these 150 ever had a Kundalini awakening. I, I was going to so say it's, it's not, rare. <laughs> it's quite rare. It's quite rare, except it's not that rare because I've had a number of people uh, doing their Alpha One training have Kundalini awakenings. One of them uh, was uh, Dr. Sherry Clark who I met through Marshall Thurber's Positive Deviant Network. And she came for training. And on her third or fourth day, she had a kundalini awakening. And her body is like shaking like this in the chamber. And 
you know, we're calling in saying, hey, there's a lot of artifacts. And she's going, I'm doing the best I can, you know, to just be there. Now, what was cool was afterwards, she came out with drawings. And she said she had been shown that she was uh, one of my lab assistants in Atlantis, where I was a brain scientist inventing this technology. And so she had detailed drawings of the laboratory. And although I personally have no knowledge of any past lives, I've had five or six trainees tell me that they were with me in Atlantis. I've had psychics tell me I was a brain scientist in Atlantis. And yeah, well, that's cool. But the point is that this Kundalini is awakenable in people who are close to the threshold by the Alpha One training. Now, we also have theta training. I had my first awakening doing theta feedback, but we also have delta trainings. Now, you might remember the scene in Star Wars where Luke and Obi-Wan and the two droids are on Luke's speeder and they're trying to get into Dantooine to book passage off planet. And there are some Imperial stormtroopers there that say they need to see your identifications. And Obi-Wan goes into this state and he goes, you don't need to see our identification. The stormtrooper goes, we don't need to see these identifications. <laughs> these aren't the droids we're looking for. These aren't the droids. We're... This is something that you can do in Delta. These are Delta. And so we only give Delta trainings by invitation after people have done enough Alpha and Theta trainings and have demonstrated a sufficient degree of ethical cleansing. Because if you have anger, fear, or sadness, and you have Delta, you can kill people. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I had a, I had a we we had a trainee who um, an alpha trainee who showed a lot of delta in his record right from the start, and uh, he had been in special forces in the U.S. military, and by day five he was willing to share his story. And he said, when he was went into the military, he was tested in all different kinds of ways: skill, strength, agility, endurance, marksmanship, intelligence, and brainwaves. And because he had naturally occurring Delta, he was put into a group of 99 other soldiers who also had Delta, and they were used for targeted assassinations. They would be shown pictures and videos of the target. And for some, they'd put together 20 or 30 of them. But for high-value targets that were well-protected psychically by the other side, they would bring all 100 of them together and they would look at the videos, you know, shot through telephoto lenses or pictures or whatever. And then they would attempt to kill that person by going into Delta and intending it. He said their success rate was 80 percent. Wow. So we are very, yeah, we are very careful who we train in Delta because we don't want to create any Darth Vader's. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the... The discussion that we had in Munich, we got into a little bit about some foods that we may want to avoid or actions we may want to avoid when it comes to if we were just living everyday life and wanted to enhance our own alpha state, there are certain foods that we may want to avoid. Do you mind going into those a little bit? Sure. Um, Onions and garlic. We recommend that people eliminate onions and garlic from their diet at least a week before they come for their training. Now, mm-hmm. you may know in uh, Vedic medicine and in uh, uh, many of the Eastern traditions, onions and garlic are formally excluded. I believe the Brahmin caste in India are formally forbidden from having garlic. There's an Arab proverb that said, after the devil had done his dirty work in the Garden of Eden, when he walked out, 
Where his first foot fell, that's where garlic grew. And where his second foot fell, that's where onions grew. So there's a deep understanding in parts of culture that these are inimical to, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the heights of performance. I know of a study done with Air Force test pilots where they would be doing uh, brainwave measurements on them in the morning. Then they would go out to lunch and have garlic pizza and come back and their alpha would just be profoundly diminished. And so I have a number of examples from, you know, uh, trainees who inadvertently were using snack food that had garlic and became progressively uh, verbally abusive and angry. And uh, so there may be health benefits of onions and garlic. I know of a couple of studies that attempted to confirm these health benefits of garlic and didn't find any, mm-hmm. but health benefits aside, uh, it's the psychological effect. Onions and garlic are said to promote a rajasic temperament. In the Indian psychology, uh, there's tamas, which is the principle of ignorance and inertia, rajas, which is the principle of ego activity and willfulness, and sattva, which is the principle of enlightenment. And people differ in how much of these components they are expressing at any time. And onions and garlic increase rajas. And so this is not consistent or compatible with anyone wanting to follow a meditative path. Mm. What about caffeine and alcohol? And uh, nicotine. All of these suppress alpha. So all Um, three of them. Yeah. As little as one beer 24 hours ago will lower your alpha baselines the next day. So we urge people not to use alcohol. It is a poison. It's a central nervous system depressant. And so, uh, you know, you're better off uh, for your alpha not having any. Uh, Caffeine has about a 15-hour effect in uh, suppressing alpha. It constricts the blood vessels, lowers alpha. And same with nicotine. Now, nicotine, which is typically taken through the lungs, works faster than caffeine, which has to go through the stomach. And so... A one puff on a cigarette and the alpha is just destroyed. So conclusion, if I wanted to access states of flow on a more regular basis, one of the ways I can do that is by reducing these foods or in some cases, beverages. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. Dr. Hart, this is incredible. If you don't mind, I want to transition just because I know you're short on time and we're short on time here. I want to transition into our final four questions, if you will, uh, because we've covered a lot of ground here and I already know that people are going to love this episode and are going to want you back on the show, but I guess to come back. I love talking with you. Engaging interview. I, I, uh, I would actually love to come to your, one of your offices around the world and we can do it in person, but Oh, well, maybe we could combine that with you doing a training. That would be, that's, that's where I'm going with this. So I I like that idea for a future episode. (laughs) So the first of our our final four questions or something that I like to term the four horsemen is how do you Mm -hmm. unwind? Um, Okay. Well, there's a variety of ways uh, to do that. Um, In fact, let's talk about happy hours. Mm-hmm. which is alcohol, okay? People come off a stress day, they're muscularly tense, they're mentally tense, and they start drinking alcohol. Well, the alcohol, although it lowers their alpha, also relaxes them at a body level. And that happens pretty quickly. 
And so happy hour is actually only 45 minutes long. The first 45 minutes of drinking alcohol, you get uh, body relaxation, which actually helps people to uh, unwind. But then after 45 minutes, the alpha suppressing effects of the alcohol kick in and, you know, people get drunk, you know, then they have hangovers. The next day their alpha is low. They feel bad. So there are better ways. We are, uh, of course, uh, uh, meditation, uh, breathing exercises, all of these are uh, wonderful ways to clear the mind. We have a new product uh, soon to be released for uh, under 500 euros, which will be a device that will, it's the second most powerful way I've ever found to raise alpha. The first, of course, being the biosavernaut alpha feedback training. But this device which is not a brainwave-based device, will be, it's portable, it's a personal unit, and you'll be able to use it and very quickly access the body relaxation, um, the better oxygenation of the blood, the increased alpha. And uh, so, you know, there are technological fixes, but absent that, just taking yourself to a quiet place, uh, sitting down, closing your eyes, and uh, slowing your breathing. These will be very effective ways to unwind. Anyone can do it. It doesn't uh, take any technology. So I'm hesitant to ask this next question because you're the master of creating alpha states, but what do do you do or do you do, uh, have you already kind of achieved this state of enhanced focus always? What do you do to enhance your focus if if you need to? Oh, well, I have, shall we say, easy access to the chamber. <laughs> um, to, for, for three days before I left for the month-long trip to Europe, I was in the chamber here in Sedona. Uh, I was also in the chamber in Germany uh, doing uh, feedback. And so uh, retention is a function of overlearning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons that we have seven consecutive long days is that so people can overlearn the response of letting go into alpha. And that way they retain it. As you know, in the federal grant, people were still coming up with new benefits six months and 12 months after their training. Mm-hmm. And so this wouldn't happen if you went to ABC neurofeedback and you had a, you know, one hour, 90 minute session, you know, three times a month, it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a state change. We're talking about a fundamental shift in how you perceive reality more accurately, less reactively. Which sounds incredible. Uh, I can't wait to experience this. But what book? Ha- yeah, exactly. Uh, what book has significantly impacted your life and how you show up to perform in it? Well, uh, I've actually written a book called "The Art of Smart Thinking." Uh, which uh, summarizes uh, some you know interesting stories, talks about the technology, talks about forgiveness. Um, one very influential book in my early career was uh, called Altered States of Consciousness. And uh, in it, uh, there was a paper by Joe Camilla. I think it was published by Charles Tart, edited by Charles Tart about 1970. And Joe Camilla had a sort of a rambling uh, paper in there, a recording of a transcript of a talk that he'd given. And uh, there were also uh, two key papers on the brainwaves of Satori and of Samadhi, Mm -hmm. which helped me understand the differences in uh, Zen and yoga philosophy as they related to what was going on in the brainwaves of those 
uh, ecstatic states. Fantastic. Dr. Hart, where now, you- I would highly, oh, go ahead. I also highly recommend books uh, by uh, Dr. David Hawkins. Hmm. Um, for example, uh, in his book, um, Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender, he was a psychiatrist. He had the largest psychiatry practice in the U.S. for a while in New York City. And then he moved in the direction of becoming more spiritual, gave up that practice. And so with the perspective of the largest psychiatry practice guy in America, he said the goals of letting go and psychiatry are different. In psychiatry, he said, the goal is to help people massage their egos so they fit in better with other egos. Uh, The goal of letting go is complete liberation of the soul, which only happens when you can suspend the function of the ego. As long as you have a body, you will have an ego, but it can be big and obtrusive and get on people, or it can be subtle and evanescent and rarely in evidence. And the uh, pathway of surrender, uh, letting go of the pathway of surrender, is very aligned with the way we do the forgiveness training at Barnes-Harbin. In fact, I actually have a paper, published paper in a British journal, that compares uh, the Dr. David Hawkins' work with Lesson 134 in the Course of Miracles, which is, let me understand forgiveness as it is, and the Biosyvernet Training. So there's a British online journal, EC Psychiatry and Psychology, where in, uh, I think, 2017, this paper was published. And I'm going to try and link to all of this in the show notes. But Dr. Hart, where can people find out more about you? Well, we have www.biocybernaut.com, which is the website, and we're just about to release a brand new version of the website. One of the key features is uh, videos uh, and on YouTube and uh, a lot of scientific publications so people can, uh, at no cost, inform themselves about the deep science that supports, underlies, and uh, enriches the biocybernaut trainings. And like I said, I'm looking forward to going to one of these trainings in the near future. But Dr. Hart, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this. This has been an absolute pleasure. Boomer, it's been a delight and I look forward to again soon. Absolutely. To all the superhumans listening out there, the show notes for this one are going to be at decodingsuperhuman.com slash biocybernaut. And everyone have an absolutely epic day. All right. After that episode... Who's ready to go do BioCybernaut with me? I don't know about you, but I always like things that can upgrade both my IQ, my EQ, deal with past traumas, and just all around make me feel more epic. If you want to check out the show notes for this one, and I will link to everything that Dr. Hart mentions, it's decodingsuperhuman.com slash BioCybernaut. And if you enjoyed the episode, and who didn't really, share it with a friend. And if you really enjoyed the episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. All ratings are absolutely appreciated. As always, superhumans, have an absolutely epic day.